We'll hear argument first today in case 08-1198, Stolt-Nielsen S.A. versus Animal Feeds International. Mr. Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, unlike courts, arbitrators derive their authority solely from the consent of the parties to a particular agreement. That agreement determines not only what the parties have agreed to arbitrate, but just as fundamentally with whom they have agreed to do so. And when the agreement reveals no intent, no meeting of the minds to add participants, but the arbitrators nonetheless extend their reach to hundreds of parties of other contracts, they violate the basic principle reflected in the FAA that their authority is created and circumscribed by an agreement. The decision to impose class proceedings is not the kind of incidental procedural matter that arbitrators have to resolve in order to discharge their responsibilities under the foundational agreement. Mr. Waxman, there's a preliminary question in this case, and that is there was one agreement undoubtedly signed by both sides, and that was the one to submit to the arbitrator the question whether the arbitration clause um, permitted class treatment. The arbitrators answered that question, which they were given authority to do so by both sides, uh, and the Second Circuit said that the arbitrator's answer was in the ballpark. If we agree with that, then there's nothing else to consider in this case. I respectfully disagree, Justice Ginsburg. The arbitrators, the agreement reflected in paragraph 7 of the supplemental agreement, that is, to proceed to arbitration under the auspices of Rules 3 through 7 of the AAA rules, and Rule 3 itself contemplated precisely, submitting precisely the contract issue that the Basel plurality said should go to the arbitrators. That is, looking at the arbitration clause itself, does it objectively reveal an agreement among the two parties to permit or prohibit class or consolidated treatment, or is it truly silent? That is a question of contract interpretation. That is the question that was submitted to the arbitrators. There is a separate statutory question that arises if the answer to the contract question is number three. There is no meeting of the minds. It is there is no such answer. I thought in contracts there is no such answer when you interpret a contract, and it doesn't say. You try to figure out. I used to be taught that. Probably I'm way out of date. You try to figure out what a reasonable party would have intended. Justice Breyer, I thought I, that's what Basil said. I very, yeah. I very much doubt that you are way out of date. I, if you are, I shudder to think where I am. But let me be clear. Not as out of date. I hope I'm as up-to-date as I need to be to provide a coherent, correct answer. My proposition is twofold, mm -hmm. um, and only the second part gets to your question. The first is that the arbitrators in this case decided the contractual question, the, did the parties have a meeting of the minds, yes or no, and if so, was it? Yeah. And the arbitrators then went on to say, even though there is no meeting of the minds objectively revealed, 
Nonetheless, we are going to apply a background rule that puts the burden ah, on the party okay. opposing arbitration to prove that there is an intent to preclude. So right, I see that. No, they didn't work, but there are two separate questions. Exactly. My question was first the same as Justice Ginsburg. And I have, and I have a question for you on that, because in reading these briefs, I thought your description of who is to decide this matter of whether there is to be a class action was just what you said. The question of who should decide it is a matter for the parties. So when I looked at, I've just been reading Basel three, five times. Well, you're nowhere near up to me then. All right. But what, what it seems to say is that that's a matter to figure out from the contract and background circumstances. In Basel, the contract was any, all disputes relating to this contract. Here, it doesn't say that. It says any dispute arising from the performance, termination, or making of the contract. Now, a class action determination does relate to. Maybe it doesn't arise out of. Okay? That's an argument. Yeah. So why are all these briefs saying that what Basel said was whenever this is silent, it goes to the arbitrator. The who question is answered arbitration. I can't find it saying that. No, no, no. What I, I, I'm, I'm interpreting the plurality opinion that you wrote for yeah. you and three of you. I know, I know. But what I actually and thought doesn't matter. What matters is what's okay. said. Well, our understand. What Basil said is at the very beginning of the opinion. Look, here's the case. The South Carolina Supreme Court found that the arbitration clause is truly silent. And it then applied a rule of state law that says, if it's silent, class treatment will be permitted. We granted certiorari in this case to decide whether that rule of South Carolina law applied to this case is precluded by the FAA, which requires actual consent, not coercion. Now, what the plurality in Basel, with respect, said is, we can't reach the legal question, the statutory FAA question on which we granted review, because we can't be certain that the contract really is silent. To be sure, there's no express provision, but Basel, the Basel plaintiffs say that it is silent, and Green Tree says, no, if you look at other words in it, including the right to choose each arbitrator for each arbitration, it's not the South Carolina courts answered the question, but they're not the ones, because when you're talking about a question of the interpretation of a contract that is committed to arbitration, that is for the arbitrators to decide. The arbitrators have to decide whether there was actually a meeting of the minds. Now, your vote to so the answer to Justice Ginsburg's question is, as to the who question, who shall decide whether or not, in your case, class actions are permissible? And the who question in Basel, because of the contract and background, was the arbitrator. If, the yes. who question here, irrespective of the contract, is the arbitrator for the reason that Justice Ginsburg said. There's a separate saying, you are the who. You, arbitrators, are the who. So no. now we look to the what. They then decided. Exactly. What? So what in, did they decide? In Basel, you're saying that's wrong, and there you run into all the authority, MISCO, what used to be in other places, saying when the arbitrator decides something, unless it's in Mars, follow it. <laughs> that's right. what you're addressing. Exactly. And this, and this case presents exactly the same answer to that question that Basel presented when it was granted review. That is, there is, there was a, 
an interpretation of the contract in Basel and an application of a legal principle to that interpretation. The who for what the, what the parties actually intended is the arbitrator. That's what the Basel plurality, together with Justice Stevens' vote, decided. The question that arises, the legal question that arises, only if the arbitrators say there was no meeting of the minds. So what rule does the FAA allow us to apply as a matter of federal law? That is for courts, and you didn't reach it because the preliminary question of whether the contract was really silent, the predicate question Mr. wasn't answered, and you demanded for that. Can I ask this preliminary question? Assume the contract expressly authorized uh, class arbitration. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that was permissible? If it expressly authorized? Yes. If it expressly authorized class participation, obviously we would have no argument that the parties had not agreed to it. I understand, but would you agree that would be consistent with the law to enforce such a provision? My, would, no, does, does the federal statute prohibit that kind of provision? No, certainly not. Oh. I mean, the only reason the only reason that I'm hedging, and I, I don't mean to hedge, but trying to be thoughtful, is that this court explained in Mitsubishi, in the context of the arbitration of a Sherman Act agreement, and subsequently in Gilmore and other statutory cases, that in determining whether class participation or some other form of remedy is or isn't available, there's a two-part inquiry. The first part is, what was the scope of the arbitration agreement? What is it that the parties And you would agree, agree that if they phrased their order a little differently and said, we think the best reading of this agreement is that the parties intended to authorize uh, class arbitration, then you would have no case. Then we would have review only under the, I don't know that I would characterize it this way, but what Justice Breyer characterized, the MARS standard of review. That is, you would have to show that there was manifest, manifest disregard, disregard if and you would not disregard. contend that you're not arguing that that would be manifest. No, our and, and the, the petition in this case presented the question as given, presented the, the issue of contract construction as given that the contract itself was silent, not only in the sense that it didn't include an express provision or prohibition, but also that it reflected no meeting of the minds, it objectively revealed no meeting of the minds looking not only at the actual text of the contract, but also looking at the other indicia of, objective what, indicia of intent that what in courts your view, used. What in your view were the arbitrators asked to decide by the submission by the parties? The arbitrators were asked to decide whether the arbitration agreement objectively reveals consent to prohibit, permit, whether it reveals a meeting of the minds to prohibit class treatment, permit class treatment, or whether it was truly silent. And if you didn't look you just, at — Didn't you just say that the parties agreed that there was no meeting of the minds on this issue? Well, no, no, no. The parties that — I mean, we actually — let me step back and give, a, and give the history of it. This case arose immediately in the wake of Basel. Okay? They sued in court. We obtained an order affirmed by the Second Circuit, sending them to arbitration. Basel's decided 
and we're all looking at Basel, and we decide, like the AAA, which has filed an amicus brief in this case and said it drafted these rules in order to provide a procedure to answer the Basel contract interpretation question. The AAA says we don't have any view about the statutory question that arises from silence. So we drafted a supplemental agreement that in paragraph 7 incorporates the AAA rules, 3 through 7, and the AAA rule 3, which is included on page 56 of the Joint Appendix, is headed Construction of the Arbitration Clause. And it requires the arbitrators in this arbitration to determine, quote, on construction of the arbitration clause, whether the applicable arbitration clause permits the arbitration to proceed on behalf of or against a class, the, quote, clause construction award. Now, the legal que- the, 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 the arbitrators in this case concluded that it neither permitted nor prohibited, either by its expressed terms or by reference to other objective interests of the I don't intent. understand how something, if you ask whether something permits it, and if it doesn't prohibit it, doesn't it a fortiori permit it? it <laughs> in the context of the Federal Arbitration Act, which this Court has made clear more times than I can remember, that the central purpose is to ensure that private agreements to arbitrate are enforced according to their terms. The question is, have the parties agreed to it if there is a meeting of the minds? If no meeting of the minds is objectively revealed under the FAA, the arbitrator exceeds his authority in requiring class arbitration. Um, it's — there's no consent. And if there's no consent, the legal rule under the, the hallmark principle of the FAA is this is a private consensual matter. This is not a court exercising public coercive authority. I mean, the, the — What is your understanding of what Mr. Persky says at 77A of the Joint Appendix? He was — I take it he was counsel for animal feeds? Correct. Right. And he says, all the parties agree that when a contract is silent on an issue, there's been no agreement that has been reached on that issue. Therefore, there has been no agreement to bar class arbitrations. Right. I so under- then I don't understand what issue there was for the arbitrator to dis- arbitrators to decide, they, uh, other than to impose a rule like the rule that had been adopted by South Carolina. But that would not be within their power unless they could uh, presumably find that rule in federal maritime law or New York law. Correct. So I mean, what was the issue for them to decide? So here was, here's what the issue was. They said — the contract is completely silent, and as you quoted on page 77, there's no meeting of the minds on this issue at all. That was their position about the construction of the contract. Our position about the construction of the contract was that, in fact, although there is no express provision one way or the other, this is a maritime contract, and, the, and maritime law is ascertained by custom and practice, and we introduced evidence in the form of affidavits that were unrefuted that since the days of Marco Polo, these types of spot voyages have been — That are — isn't that — you and I have a contract. I'll ship you 17 pounds of Durham wheat. 
and you will pay me $43. Uh, in the meantime, uh, a green worm eats up all the durum wheat, and therefore they can't send durum wheat. They send some duho uh, wheat. All right? Question. Is the contract I don't know not? you. Answer. Uh, uh, we have courts for that purpose. We have arbitrators for that exactly. purpose. Exactly. Arbitrators will look to see what it says. If it says nothing, they will try to determine what the parties thought. If they can't determine what they thought, they will look to custom, analogy, etc. Now, no. how they won't in in the context, imagine what, in the context of in the context of a court that has jurisdiction over a dispute and exercises coercive power, it has to get to an answer. When you're talking about private arbitration, where the model is a private agreement to resolve things between two parties, this under the FAA, the arbitrators get their authority only as to matters as to which there is consent. And there is, con con going to Justice Alito's question, there was consent. It was submitted for purpose of determining whether, if you look at the contract and look at background rules and look at parole evidence and look at custom and practice, can you discern whether, as, as you put it in, in the opinion in Howsam, Justice Breyer, whether the contract, quote, objectively reveals an agreement? by the two parties. But that's the same before courts. That's no different. I mean, yes, a court has to come to a decision, but so does an arbitrator. And I really, I really don't understand what it means to say that the contract does not cover it. I mean, the, the contract either requires it or does not require it. And if the contract is silent, either the court or the arbitrator has to decide what is the consequence of that silence in light of the background, in light of uh, implied understandings. Is the consequence of, this, of the silence that uh, a class arbitration is permitted, or is the consequence of the silence that it is not? But those are the only answers. The contract requires it, or the contract doesn't require it. I don't know anything in between the contract is silent. If the contract is silent, it's up to the court or the arbitrator to decide what that silence means. Exactly. And maybe the ambiguity here is the fluidity of the term silence. Silence can mean there's no express provision. Silence could also mean, well, if you look at other words in the text of the contract, you can't work your way through to conclude that there was, in fact, an intent. It also may mean, and this is the sense that I'm using it in, and I think the sense that the arbitrators have authority to do, is to say, well, let's look and see, for example, if there's custom and practice that would inform the backdrop against which the parties and, and why is it that you say an arbitrator cannot do that, but a judge can? No, no, no. I think an arbitrator can. The arbitrator has plenary authority, subject to manifest disregard review, to decide whether or not there was a meeting of the minds of the parties, and it can use the text of the statute. It can use an applicable background principle of governing law. It can use principles like contra, contra pro forentum, as but this Court did situated, in Are they situated, and do they have the same authority as a Court would in determining that issue, given the fact that it was remitted to them to decide? They have plenary authority to apply rules of construction that go to the party's intent, go to whether there is it's possible to discern a meeting of the and, mind. And you would, they don't would you have describe, would you describe uh, the authority of a court any differently than you've just described the authority of an arbitrator? Well, I think that courts can 
Uh, for example, a court can say, and the other side relies heavily on it, a Seventh Circuit opinion by Judge Posner, where he basically says there's no intent here, but courts apply contract constructions that seem most sensible as a matter of public policy, and that's what we're going to do. That's what a court can do and an arbitrator can't. The arbitrator can use any tools possible, including largely the text and custom and practice, in order to define whether or not there was a meeting of the minds. But if there you wasn't — Do have to agree with Judge Posner on that? I mean, I, I, I don't — I think it's a radical you proposition agree? as no, a matter of what courts can do, but it certainly doesn't express what an arbitrator can do. And he was — he was performing the kind of function ostensibly that you — said that should be done by an arbitrator in Basel. He was doing it as a court. But arbitrators have to construe the agreement itself between the two parties to see if there is a meeting of the minds. And there are lots of tools they can use. And just to get back to Wait, your question, Justice Alito, I'm sorry. In this case, we said the contract was not truly silent, that essentially we argued what Judge Rakoff concluded. They said, no, 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 it is truly silent, but you should rule for us on other grounds. And may I please ask the Court, if you have it, to turn to page 22 of our blue brief, because on page 22 of our blue brief, we have reprinted exactly what animal feeds told the arbitrators were the reasons why they should win in light of Mr. Persky's statement that there was no meeting of the minds. And it's the indented paragraph. This is all that they said. The party's arbitration clause should be construed to allow class arbitration because, A, the clause is silent on the issue of class treatment, and without express prohibition, class arbitration is permitted under Basel. The arbitrators said, no, that's not what Basel means. Basel doesn't mean that unless there's an express prohibition, it's, it's permitted. So that was their reason number one. Let's go to their reason number three. Where did the arbitrator say that? They said it in — pardon me while I get the page. Page 49A, claimants argue that Basel requires clear language that forbids class arbitration in order to bar a class action. The panel, however, agrees with respondents that the test is a more general one. Arbitrators must look to the language of the party's agreement to ascertain the party's intention, whether they intended to permit or to preclude class arbitration. Now, let's go back to what they told the arbitrators, and it's reprinted on page 22. I'm going to skip. Let me just r right there interrupt with one question. The alternatives before the arbitrator, whether it is permitted or precluded, or was silent. Though, no, and that's not what they say there, is it? That, that the parties agree they're silent. That, that whether they, if, if they're silent, whether they permit or preclude class A, those are the two alternatives that they were confronted with. They decided that it did not preclude, ergo, it permitted. Well, that's what the answer to that no, they, with, is. with respect, uh, and I'll, let me answer this question well, before getting back to those what they, what, look, you, it may, you may find, contrary to the cert grant in this case, that the predicate of our petition is wrong. Our petition is predicated 
on the understanding that the arbitrators found that the contract was truly silent, that is, it expressed no meeting of the minds, and therefore this but the case the question that were asked was whether that silence should be interpreted as a preclusion or a permission. And we know from the arbitrators' they said decision it was a permission. As, as a background rule, that's what they said. What they said was, they, first of all, and we're looking at page 52, they acknowledged the force of the argument, quote, that the bulk of international shippers would never intend to have their disputes decided in a class arbitration. But they said, well, we can deal with that later and deciding whether they can opt in or out. I mean, the point is that if you have to opt in, because it's clear that you never agreed, there is no meeting of the minds. Mr. Secondly, Washington, may I ask you, because your time is running and we're spending all of your time on this preliminary question, there is one fundamental flaw, it seems to me, in your argument, and I'd like you to answer it. And you can call it the vanishing class action. Animal feeds wanted to be in court, not in arbitration. Mm -hmm. You said and they wanted to bring a class action. Uh, you persuaded the Second Circuit they belong in arbitration. So now they're in arbitration. You say the only thing we consented to is a one-on-one -on -one claim. Fine. Animal Beads can then say, fine, we didn't consent to anything more than the one-on-one. -on -one. We had a class action. We had — we were in court. We could have proceeded in an individual action or a class action. Now we're in arbitration, and under the agreement as you read it, we can't have the class action in arbitration. That doesn't mean it vanishes, because if it does, then the arbitration clause is not merely saying what the arbitrator can decide, but it is shrinking drastically the dimensions of animal feeds claim. That's, that is incorrect with respect. Animal feeds doesn't have a class claim. Animal Feeds has a claim. Its claim is that it paid too much for the contracts that it entered into, the charter parties, to ship some sort of oil from Panama to ports around the world. It is — it was asking a court and is now asking an arbitrator to join in the separate claims that other parties to other contracts with other but that's terms. what it was doing in court. Exactly. And, and, and the court said, this goes to arbitration. What is the this? If it's only a one-on-one -on -one claim, how do they lose the larger claim that they had in court? It's, you know, that argument in the JLM case, which is the case in which the Second Circuit, the District Court in the Second Circuit said, no, you have to arbitrate this. Their briefs actually made this point. Their briefs said, you can't send us to arbitration because we won't get class treatment in arbitration. And the second — the District Court in the Second Circuit said, you have got to arbitrate according to the terms of your agreement. And footnote 9 of the but Second they never, Circuit — But they never gave up. They never — If — if the — if you regard arbitration as a change in forum, like a forum selection clause, it says where you go. But it doesn't change, if you have to go to another forum, what your claim is. Their claim was, we paid too much. And with respect, Justice Ginsburg, your point that they aren't allowed to proceed in class arbitration is no different than the fact that by agreeing to arbitrate this bilateral dispute, 
the parties agreed to dispense with an appeal and with meaningful judicial review of the things the arbitrators decided. Mr. Waxman, I hope you're going to have time to go through A, B, and C as you started I, to do. I will. Uh, Thank you. I, I was hoping to reserve a few minutes for rebuttal, yeah, but the, nothing is more important than answering the Court's questions. So I think we've dealt with A. They asked they, — they said, A, we win because Basel requires it. The, the arbitrators correctly said no. I want to skip B because my submission is that B is what they did. C says the clause would be unconscionable and unenforceable if it forbade class arbitration. The panel said we aren't reaching that. We are not deciding that question. So what's left? The only other argument that Animal Feeds made was B. The clause should be construed to permit class arbitration as a matter of public policy. And that is exactly what the arbitrators did. What they said was, and this is on page 51 of the petition appendix, they said that if they followed a strict contractual theory, quote, there would appear to be no basis for a class action absent express agreement among all parties and putative class members. And they then, lower down on the page, then said that we were required to prove that the parties, quote, intended to preclude arbitration. That is, they applied a background rule that they thought was desirable from a public policy sense. And our sole submission here, the only question presented in this case, is that that decision is not permit is precluded by the Federal Arbitration Act, which requires that contracts to arbitrate be construed only in accordance with their terms and what the parties agreed with. And Section 4 of the Arbitration Act couldn't be clearer that it, they, they can only proceed, quote, in accordance with the terms of their agreement. May I preserve the balance of my time? Thank you. Ms. Pillard. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. What the arbitrators did here was interpret the contract as the parties asked them to. They did not impose their own policy judgment, and any judicial review is under very deferential FAA standards under Section 10, which is confined to correcting what amount to gross defects in the process. Where, where, where do they say that they were interpreting the intent of the parties, that it was the intent of the parties to permit? Okay. Petitioner's position rests on a misinterpretation of what the arbitrators did. And if you look at page 59 of the petition appendix, um, Mr. Waxman already read to you the language that the arbitrators understood they must look to the language of the party's agreement to ascertain the party's intention. And then the next key part is on page 50A, which is a little terse. But Excuse what me, what part? 50? 50A, the next page of the petition oh, of I thought you said 59A to start. You no. said 49A. 49A was where right. the arbitrators described their methodology, which is a standard contract methodology to look to the party's agreement, to ascertain the party's intention, whether they intended to permit or, or preclude, preclude class action. So they've set Isn't up — that a critical difference, though? I mean, I understood the fundamental question in arb before getting arbitration is whether the parties have agreed to, to arbitrate this dispute with this party. And it's one thing to say that the contract permitted this sort of arbitration. 
Well, it's another thing to say it didn't preclude it. Now, if it didn't preclude, the contract may not preclude. If I agree, I I guess it's the — well, if I agree to arbitrate with A, it doesn't preclude me from arbitrating with B, but nothing in the agreement compels me to do that. So which did the arbitrators do? Did they say, under this contract, you agreed to a class action treatment in the sense that, whether it's the language or the intent or whatever, or did they say, we don't find anything here that precludes class action treatment? Um, Mr. Chief Justice, they did the former. And let me point you to, on page 50, what they relied on was the broad language of the agreement, the language, any disputes. Um, and in particular, they drew on the breadth of that language and on the fact that many other arbitrators had read similar language to permit class arbitration. And so those you other — me this? I, I see they've quoted from, from the yes. agreement. Where is that in the agreement itself? The any disputes yeah. language in the agreement itself. Um, if you know offhand. Is, uh, the agreement is reproduced in Appendix F of the Petition Appendix, which starts on page 67A, and the arbitration clause is on page 69A. Now, it's clear that the arbitrators rejected the notion that they should permit Well, this is, this is, I'm sorry, this is what I was wondering. It is, of course, any dispute arising from uh, blah, blah, performance termination of this charter party shall be settled in New York. Now, there's the the class is, is not a party to this charter party. So disputes arising from this charter party doesn't involve the class. So they did not agree to arbitrate with the class. Now, as I understand what the arbitrators did, they said, well, they didn't preclude it. And so we get to decide how far our authority goes. I'd like to address that directly, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. The arbitrators specifically rejected the notion that that they should adopt this as a default rule. And... uh, that's on page 49A, where we had actually argued that they should. They rejected our argument. Uh, claimants argued that Basel requires clear language that forbids class arbitration in order to bar it. The panel, however, re- agrees with respondents. So they're saying we're not going to do this based on a default rule. We're going to do this based on the language and intent. Well, no, no, right? no. no the, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just reading along here. Uh, they rejected your argument about forbids, but the — They go on to say the issue, we look at this, we look at that, to see whether they intended to permit or to preclude class action. So it's enough for them if the parties um, uh, did not intend to preclude class action. I I respectfully disagree. They go on and they read any disputes to authorize. Now, it's not to require class action. I think it's important that that be clear. It's to put the class action mechanism or to to read the contract that the class action mechanism is in the arbitrator's toolbox. It's something that's available. It's not necessarily going to happen, but it's something that's available. So it's part of a delegation to the arbitrators of authority to choose procedures. Now, In any any case, when you say the arbitrator's toolbox, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if that's something different than what the parties agreed to. No, by agreeing to arbitrate any disputes, the arbitrators found that they were given the authority to use class arbitration among other procedures if they were appropriate in a particular case. It it, it seems to me that the arbitrators are are putting the choice uh, in in a false manner. It isn't whether, on the one hand, they agreed to to permit it, or on the other hand, they agreed to prohibit it. Just forget about the latter. They must have agreed to permit it. 
where did the arbitrators say they agreed they agreed to permit it not simply they did not agree to prohibit it I'm, you don't have to uh, agree to prohibit everything in a contract you have to agree to permit it that's what contracting is about that's right i'd like to point to two aspects of the opinion that i can clarify this the one is their reference to the language on page 50A, the panel is — and they're, they're talking about the language in the context of the other arbitration precedent or the other arbitration opinions that had developed at that point under the AAA arbitration scheme. And they're saying the, they, they find that the broad wording, any dispute, to be significant and the fact that other arbitrators looking at that language also found any dispute to encompass the choice of this procedure. Now, um, I think it was — Well, no, I mean, they, they put it just, just the way that uh, — that is not good for you. The panel is struck by the fact that respondents have been unable to cite any post-basal panels or arbitrators that construed their clauses as prohibiting a class action. That's not what, what they have to find. They, they must find positively that it permits a class action. And it's our contention, and I think it's clear, that they found that it was permitted. And when you see that — Following. Just give me some language that says that. I, I, there's nothing in that paragraph that the, says it. The, the broad wording, the any dispute. Now, they reject the notion. They expressly have rejected the notion that they're supposed to do it as a matter of default. And then I just want to address this language, which I think could be confusing, at the bottom of 51A, um, where they say they don't establish that the parties to — this is the last paragraph on 51A. Um, the respondents — uh, evidence does not establish that the parties intended to preclude class arbitration. You might read that as supporting the argument that you're proffering. However, I believe that the arbitrators meant that, that once they had established under the Any Disputes language that there was affirmative general authorization on the part of the arbitrators to choose any procedures, to have this in their toolbox, then, in order to overcome that, you would need to, and the, and the petitioners were trying with their maritime experts, to show an intent to preclude. So the only language you can point to is that, is that any dispute language on 58. That's right. And I think that's very you, important. You're hanging your whole, your, your whole assertion that, that these arbitrators not only found that the contract did not per, prohibit it, but found that the contract positively authorized class action upon that language on 58. Together with the language on 49A, where the panel expressly rejects the idea that all you need is the absence of language forbidding it, right? So they've already they've set the issue up exactly as you, your hypo, hypothetical would require them to. They've said it's not enough to where, find. Where, where, where? It's on 49A. The second sentence under the heading of discussion of parties' contentions, they say claimants argue that Basel requires clear language that forbids class arbitration. Clear language is, is the point of that sentence. Claimants argue that Basel requires clear language that forbids class arbitration. The panel, however, agrees with respondents that the test is a more general one. Arbitrators must look to the language to ascertain the party's intention, whether they intended to permit or to preclude class action. I the point of those two sentences is simply that in order for us to find that you didn't preclude it, and if you didn't preclude it, it's okay, 
You don't need clear language. We have to look to everything. I, I respectfully disagree, well, Justice Scalia, but I think that the, what's very important here is that judicial review is under a very deferential standard, which is confined well, to correcting — Well, that's just saying that they're, they're giving up a lot. This is the basic reason that you require, I thought, fairly clear language, that you're agreeing to arbitrate. They're giving up their right to go into court. They have an agreement between A and B that they will arbitrate a dispute, and they say you're giving up your right to go to court with the dispute between A and C. And the any dispute language that you're, you know, quite understandably relying on refers to any dispute arising from the term making performance or termination of this charter party. This charter party says nothing about arbitrating with C. No, but this charter party is the same agreement that the petitioners have with every absent class member. We wouldn't be oh, here. Oh, but they can agree to arbitrate. They can agree to arbitrate with some and not with others, even if it's the same contract. They may decide that your client is a very reasonable person. They're happy to submit that to arbitration, or it's a very big and important client, and they don't want to get into court with you. They may decide some other party for whatever reason. They don't want to get dragged into court with them. Same charter party, different, different parties uh, in different results. Excuse me, Mr. Chief Justice. They've already entered into agreements. They've already said they're going to arbitrate with the absent class members. So everybody has the same contract that says any disputes. And the question is, do the arbitrators under that broad language have the authority? And I would point this Court to this Court's decision in Mastro Buono, which read a clause requiring arbitration of any controversy to empower arbitrators to award punitive damages. And that was despite established New York State law to the contract. That's why I started this. Oh, we don't get many contract interpretation cases, and that's why I, I needed to go back to Jack Dawson, who was a great contracts professor. And I am. I used to teach contracts. Did you know that? What? I, used to, I didn't have that pleasure. But the, 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 the uh, uh, as I re- recall, the, the way I would have interpreted, imagine a worker. Uh, who says, I have a right, permission, it's permissible for me to eat lunch next to the machine. The employer says no. The question was, what is, does the contract permit this or not? So the arbitrator or the judge reads the words, nothing. have no idea. Then the judge or the arbitrator reads the rest of the contract. Haven't a clue. Then the arbitrator or the judge goes and looks and sees, what's practice around here? I don't know. Then they might look to what happens in the rest of the industry. Then they might look to what happens in foreign countries with comparable industries. Then they might look to to public policy. They might look almost to anything under the sun they think is relevant. And the way, in jargon, you describe the bottom line is they have found a meeting of the minds as to what this means. Now, of course, it isn't really a meeting of the minds. But that's just the summary of the conclusion as to what objectively read those words in the contract mean. Now, that's how I think I would have learned it. Is that still done, or is there some other way of describing it? I think that's pretty good contract law. If that's contract law, then I take it what they're saying is, it may be true, that the arbitrators, when they looked at some of those elements, really got it wrong. Now, if they're correct on that, this is the other question I have. You're going to say, no, they're not, didn't get it that wrong. Wrong maybe, but not that wrong. All right. Now, can they not do this? The next person who has this form contract 
does not so readily agree it's up to the arbitrator to say whether that contains a class action or not. Rather, they say, I read this contract as reserving that question to the court. It's not the same language as was there in Basel. It's not the, the same industry of the kind you had in Basel. And therefore, a judge should decide that. That's the meaning of the mind on the who question. And then we'll get it all resolved because the judge might come out differently if they're right, and maybe arbitrators will follow the judge. I'm interested, because we might have to write something, in your answer to that question. I think that if they wanted to write around it, they could do that, as uh, this Not, no, they're going to, they have something already in place. Could it be interpreted to say, yes. this is a question for the court, mm-hmm. um, I think, I don't see the language here in this contract, but they could try to do that. There's nothing in the FAA that bars it. And, you know, as we've emphasized, the contract interpretation under ordinary contract rules that the FAA has consistently applied in, and this Court has consistently applied under the FAA in, in, in many, many cases. It's ordinary contract law we're talking about here. Now, I just think one thing, when we're thinking about contract law, which is ordinarily in the province of the states, I think it's important that the New York Appellate Division in Chung versus Oxford Health Plans has since approved just such an arbitrator's contract interpretation under New York law, allowing class arbitration under a 1998 pre-Basel clause. Allowing. Allowing. See, that's the, where I get hung up. There's a difference in arbitration, and it's a fundamental difference between allowing something and a background rule that requires it if you don't say anything about it. The difference I see with the hypothetical Justice Breyer put is that you're talking about the details of a contract once it's agreed there is a contract. There's a contract that governs the relationship between the employer and the employee, and you're trying to figure out if it says anything about where they eat lunch. This is the much more fundamental issue uh, of whether you've even agreed to arbitrate with this person. Is this guy your employee or just somebody who came in off the street? And I think what the, your, your brother's position is, is that this is just somebody who came off the street, the class members. I didn't agree to do anything with them. Well, I, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, that that goes back to whether any disputes can plausibly be read to encompass the class mechanism, because if it can, well, then by agreeing to that contract, you have, in effect, agreed to something that delegates to the arbitrator the ability to so, use that. So when you I, pick I, your arbitrator, you picked your arbitrator knowing that. And here they had extra notice, right, because this case had been filed in court as a class action. They knew when they picked these arbitrators, and you can tell by the caliber of arbitrators they picked, that they knew this could be a class arbitration. And so they're picking people who are up to that task. Now, they also know that they're going to dispute that. But if we're right that the arbitrators plausibly and under the the Mars standard of judicial review have have uh, sustainably interpreted this contract uh, to give the arbitrators the authority to proceed on a class basis, well, then I think your objective is That's what it comes down to, whether it's an interpretation of the contract to give the arbitrators the authority to proceed on a class basis. Not enough, right, under your view, if there's nothing in there that precludes them from doing so. I think that's a question of state law. For example, under the state law at the time in South Carolina, what the South Carolina Supreme Court found in Basel was that the contract was silent, but the applying two rules of contract construction, contra preferent, well, one rule of contract construction and one FAA rule, which is the Moses H. Cohn rule, the court said, we find this contract authorizes it. 
right? So there was contra-preferendum. There was also, which I haven't mentioned, and I should, the Moses H. Cohn rule, which says when there's any ambiguity about the scope of issues that have been given to the arbitrator, we put a finger on the scale in favor of giving the issue to the arbitrator. So if it's unclear, any disputes, well, maybe that only is about contract issues. Well, the court in JLM said no, it's so what, what too, happens? and the arbitrators say procedure, too. What happens if you get the arbitrator on the stand and he says, as we read the contract, it doesn't say, and nothing about the intent of the parties leads me to believe they meant, you may arbitrate this on a class basis. But at the same time, there's nothing in there that says you may not. And I looked at the intent of the parties and background rules, and nothing there says you may not. What do you understand to be the answer? Can they proceed on a class basis or not? I understand that to be something that's answered by state contract law, and it might yeah. differ from state to state. Right. It's the background rule under which you should interpret right. this. So we have to decide, when, we, when the contract says nothing about class actions, whether the background rule should be you can go ahead or the background rule should be you can't go ahead. We, the arbitrators, decide that. Not well, with the United States Supreme Court. It's a question of state contract law. But the ra- arbitrators have already told us. I, I, I think you disagree with it. Yeah. Take it for purposes argument. What the arbitrators have told us is that it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say you can do it. It doesn't say you can't do it. Well, you I assume don't agree that's with that, true. Do you? No, I know. She, I said she doesn't agree with it. But I mean, assuming that's true, what's the answer? Yes or no? Can they go ahead with class action or not? They, in my view, they haven't answered that question. Well, maybe they have answered that question under New York law. They've answered the New York contract law question that was put to them. I think they tee it up in a way that uh, Mr. Waxman and I agree is a valid statement of New York contract law, which is on page 49. We look to the party's intent and the language to ascertain whether they would permit or preclude. Would you help and if me they've applied one? that and they've found yes, I think we have to, under the deferential standard of review that applies under FAA Section 10, which looks only at gross defects in the process, we have to say they've done their job, they've found this contract authorizes the arbitrators if they find that it's necessary. And, you know, we do have a rightness argument here, which is that they haven't done anything. May, may they I ask the question, other- a very basic elementary question, where in the record is the specific question to the arbitraries found um, that well, they were asked uh, to, to respond to? Good question. In the arbitrator's own opinion? I understand what the arbitrator said, but is there anything in the record that says, we want you to answer this narrow question? And if so, what is it? What I'm looking to, and I'm not sure this is going to be the best site for you, but in the um, petitioner's reply brief, they say, uh, on page 6, the parties certainly authorized the arbitrators to determine whether the parties intended to permit or prohibit class arbitration. And I do think that's an accurate statement of what the arbitrators — But the record does not contain the specific question that uh, arbitrators were asked to answer. Is that correct? I — I haven't been able to find it. I understand what they say they were asked to answer, but I I thought there would be some document saying we've agreed to the supplemental arbitration agreement, which is going to define what the answer — what the question you have to answer. Right. This, well, the supplemental agreement does um — Because I don't think that, from what I've been able to read, I don't think they were ever asked the question whether the agreement authorizes a class action, a class procedure. They were only asked to decide whether it either permitted it or precluded it. 
But is that what the, the question really was? Now, permitted, I think they take to understand as authorized. And the reason, and this is something that the Court, in the context of the Sixth Circuit Dub Herring case, says they, they explain why do we use the language permit. We use it because they're not saying whether you actually are going to use this power. We're just saying this power is available to you. But I think for purposes of whether the contract is giving the authority to the arbitrators that permitted means Authorized. See, as I understand it, in the supplemental agreement, they were asked a question about the meaning of the underlying arbitration agreement. Yes. But I can't find what that specific question was, which seems to me answers the whole case if we could find out what it is. Here's the supplemental agreement here, because I thought, yes. reading this, the supplemental agreement submitted the case under Rule 3 yes. of the AAA. And the supplement yes. Rule 3 of the AAA supplementary rules says an arbitrator shall, quote, determine as a threshold matter in a reasoned partial final award on the construction of the arbitration clause whether the applicable arbitration clause permits the arbitration to proceed on behalf of or against a class. So I thought the supplemental agreement said apply Rule 3, and therefore it was asking the arbitrators to decide the question put in Rule 3. Is that right? I think that's correct. So then we could get the question by reading page 7 of the blue brief. What is that? What's on 56A of the Joint Appendix, construction of the arbitration clause? That's what Mr. Waxman referred us to. Yes, that's right. The, ooh, 56A of the. Upon appointment, the arbitrator shall determine as a threshold matter. What, what page? Are, are you at, on the buff, in the buff Joint Appendix? Yes, 56A. 56A, exactly. It's, I've bracketed it here. It's um, under uh, Heading 3, Construction of the Arbitration Clause. Upon appointment, the arbitrator shall determine as a threshold matter in a region partial final award on the construction of the arbitration clause whether the applicable arbitration clause permits the arbitration to proceed on behalf of or against a class. Um, so the question put to them is, is it permissible in that phase, and the question put to them in the next phase is, do you actually want to use it in the context of this case? I did want to address uh, the language that, that Justice. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it doesn't help me a lot. What, what does it mean if it permits it? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you could say if there's a background rule that uh, whether the parties agree to it or not, it's okay. Does permits it mean authorizes it? Does it? Does that mean whether the parties have agreed to it? Is that what permits mean there? In my view, it means it authorizes the arbitrators to choose. We're talking here about an, a question of arbitration procedure, as this Court correctly characterized it in Basel. And typically what you have is an arbitration clause that says you arbitrate any disputes. And as this one does, it doesn't incorporate any arbitration provider's rules, and therefore what you have is the arbitrators have to select the procedure. If you and I so have not a, I'm sorry. If you and I have a contract, you're going to sell me a car, and we write up a contract and, and, and we enter into it, and it provides for arbitration if we have a dispute. I also buy a car from Mr. Waxman, and I Xerox that contract. It's the exact same contract. We have a dispute, and we go to arbitration. Can Mr. Waxman come in and say, I've got the same contract and I've got the same dispute. Ar arbitrate with me, too. I would say that if you have — well, if, if 
they've chosen the arbitrator and we've chosen the arbitrator and it's the same arbitrator and the arbitrator wants to put them together, under this language I would say the arbitrator does have the authority to do that. Yes. Okay. Now suppose I have a contract just with you and it, to arbitrate. Uh, or I have this, uh, the same contract with Mr. Waxman, but it has no arbitration clause. And he says, well, the dispute is the same. You're arbitrating that. Can I come in, too, and, and get uh, bound by your decision? I would say no. You would say no. And the reason is? He doesn't have an arbitration agreement with you. Not that I, he doesn't have a arbitration agreement with me or that it's not the same arbitration agreement. He doesn't have an arbitration agreement that has the same language that has the same or substantially similar language giving the arbitrator the authority to use class procedures. Let's say the intent is pertinent when we enter into the contract, okay? And there's good evidence about what you and I meant the contract to mean. And there's not any evidence about what Mr. Waxman and I meant the contract to mean. We've got an arbitration clause in both cases. Can we arbitrate? Can I be required to arbitrate Mr. Waxman's contract with, uh, along with the one that you and I have entered into? I think your question is getting to we have evidence of subjective intent here and none there. But the New York law, as is the law in many jurisdictions, is an objective intent standard. So you look to the language as evidence of intent. And on this intent question, I did just want to um, respond to a question that Justice Alito had asked Mr. Waxman about Mr. Persky saying there's been no agreement that has been reached on this issue, which is in the joint appendix, the buff-colored appendix on page 77A. Now, he clarifies in the next sentence that what he's, what he's speaking to there is there's been no agreement to bar class arbitrations, right? This is in the context of disputes over whether this maritime expert witness testimony is going to be admitted. And I think it's very clarifying that two pages later, at page 79A of the joint appendix, Mr. Persky expressly makes the argument that we believe the arbitrators adopted, which is that the arbitration clause here contains broad language, and this language should be interpreted to permit class arbitrations. And at the end of the following paragraph, he continues, use of any normally means all and includes class arbitration, except unless expressly excluded. So he's two pages later making — What page are you quoting? I'm I'm sorry. I'm quoting from the buff-colored joint appendix at page 79A, around the middle of the page, and then in the following paragraph. So he's clearly making the argument here, and he doesn't make it in the brief that, that Mr. Waxman cited, and I think the arbitrators correctly rejected the, the respondents' framing of that issue um, and actually went further, as they say in their opinion. They didn't think that those were adequate grounds uh, to rule um, for the respondents. That for us, they thought they had to find uh, an intent in the contract. And then Mr. Persky does make that argument, which I think is the winning argument, here on page 79A. Um, now, may, I, may I ask you th- this question? Let's assume that you prevail in this case, I I would assume that the tankers are now going to add to their contract, as many contracts do, a provision saying no class action. You cannot proceed in a class action. (coughs) If the arbitration agreement says, agreed uh, to arbitrate any and all disputes, but uh, you may not proceed on behalf of a class. Would that preclude you from bringing a class action any place? I think it would, if and if the arbitrator that might be the exact kind of fact situation that 
if the arbitrators sort of somehow ignored that in reading the contract and said, oh, you, the arbit- we still have the authority to authorize a class, that is the kind of thing that under this very deferential standard of review might be exceeding their There power. are many, many contracts, and pick up your average credit card agreement, will say you may not bring this as a class. Many such contracts. And indeed, there are contracts that started doing that back in the 90s. Um, I think the case before Discover Bank is a, is a, a party that started to put express no class action. Uh, and then you don't get, you win this case, but then all the future animal feeds lose because they'll just put in the arbitration agreement. We can't proceed. That's right. Plan. But at least it was incumbent on them to do that here if this was something that they were so concerned about would be such a burden on them. And be- the fact that they did not do that, even though class arbitration has been uh, something that's been happening actively in California for at least a quarter century, this is one of the largest, you know, in a con- not, within a Not in this industry, however. I'm not so sure. I mean, we don't have evidence that, that it's been going on. No, because this is a yeah. — thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Waxman, why don't you take two minutes? Okay, three points, so I'll take 25 seconds for each point. First of all, these contracts in the class are not all the same. These are form contracts that are drafted by the charterers and their brokers, and they involve different clauses, including different arbitration clauses. Second point, the Rule 3, I think, fairly does encapsulate the question that the parties presented to the Court, which is to construe the contract, the question that the Basel plurality sent back. The AAA amicus brief in this case, which I commend to the Court on behalf of no party, says over and over and over again, we drafted the rules to provide procedures to answer the Basel contract question. We have no opinion about the answer to the Federal statutory question that arises if the answer to the, con- the meeting of the minds question is no meeting of the minds as a matter of contract law. And if you find, and much of the discussion this morning has focused on this, that, well, somehow the arbitrators did just decide the meeting of the minds question, they didn't decide the legal consequences of no meeting of the minds, then just as in Keating and as in Basel, you will not be able to reach the very important fundamental FAA statutory question in this case, and the next generation of lawyers will come before you or your successors to get it answered. Now, as to the contract question, I do want to address your point, Justice Breyer, about the toolbox. It is true that in answering the contract, what is the, what did the parties intend? Was there really a meeting of the minds here? And by the way, let me just say that when Ms. Pillard says, well, we don't know whether the parties to this industry agreed or disagreed, all of the, ev- the evidence was undisputed that since the days of Marco Polo, the background principle in maritime law has been bilateral, rigorously bilateral. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.